0: Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear, and do. This talk comes from the ANU College of Asia and the Pacific. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk.
1: Welcome to another National Security College public seminar. I'm Roger Bradbury. I'm the Director of Research at the college. And I'd especially like to welcome uh, the diplomatic community and some of the public public service that are here and as well as as well as students. Uh, this is this is going to be a very interesting evening. <coughs> as a a sometime marine scientist, uh, I'm always fascinated by the fact that uh, we've got a two-ocean Navy, but we've actually got three oceans uh, and one one that we don't look after. Uh, it's almost as if were we in America, we weren't worrying about this, the patch of ocean, the sea lines of communication between, say, California and uh, Hawaii or California and Alaska. So, th- so we've got an oceans problem. And then, as a person who likes, uh, very interested in climate change, we have to our south, as, as part of our territory, one of the great engines and drivers of climate change. Thing that moderates and also accelerates changes in in the world's climate, the Antarctic continent. That's something we don't we don't think about as part of as one of our problems, one of our territorial problems, quite quite enough. And then, as a person who's interested in uh, strategic affairs and international relations, I'm interested that a lot of our strategic analysts look north to some of the conflicts and and troubles. Uh, a fair way away in the South China Sea, perhaps, or in the North Korean Peninsula, and yet, next to our territory, our territorial neighbours uh, have overlapping territorial claims. We have a whole bunch of uh, claimant states butting up against us in our in our in one of the, in our territory of Antarctica, and uh, we don't pay that nearly enough attention. So. Antarctica, as a strategic issue, is a very important issue. And we've got someone uh, who has uh, experienced non pore to, to talk about it uh, with us tonight. Tony Press was former director of the Australian Antarctic Division and a former head of the Antarctic CRC. He's going to talk about strategic our strategic interests in in that part of the world tonight and after the talk we'll do our usual Q&A and I should remind you that the talks are being videoed so you'll be able to see them uh, after you'll be able to see them or tell your colleagues about them afterwards and they can they can refresh themselves with the proceedings tonight so I'd like to hand over to Tony please
2: thank you for coming it's uh, I know a, a fair smattering of people in the audience but there are many I don't know so I hope you all find this at least a little bit interesting. Um, I've just finished a major report for uh, the government on Australia's Antarctic interests, um, which gave me, um, besides far too much work to do, it also gave me a concentrated piece of time in which I was able to go back um, through our historical, political uh, and scientific engagement in Antarctica uh, and and put it, uh, put it in, in perspective. And what I want to do tonight uh, is to give you that perspective about Australia's engagement uh, in the Antarctic, uh, historical, um, scientific, uh, political, uh, and, and cultural to a certain extent. Uh, and then um, touch on some of the issues that are emerging uh, in the Antarctic sphere uh, and why uh, the ultimate conclusion of of my uh, recent report uh, to the government uh, is that Australia should reassert publicly its its Antarctic interests uh, and should be very forthright. Uh, about our engagement in Antarctica and and why uh, we are there and why it's important for Australia. Um, Roger talked about being a free ocean nation. Well, Australia has the third largest marine jurisdiction in the world, not counting Antarctica. So if you discount Antarctica, Australia still has the third largest marine jurisdiction in the world. It has the largest extended continental shelf in the world, and a third of our marine jurisdiction lies below Australian mainland. So we have a huge uh, area of, of responsibility to our south, uh, and we've had that interest and that responsibility uh, for over a, a century. Even predating uh, Douglas Mawson's uh, epic heroic era adventures of science and exploration in Antarctica, uh, the first Australian to land on the on, on the Antarctic continent did so. Um, 1898, Tasmanian, which is always a good thing, Um, and um, Australia's engagement has been in both science, uh, exploration, discovery uh, and possession um, since that period of time. Douglas Mawson uh, in 1911, although he never had letters patent from the Crown uh, on his own initiative, uh, claimed... Antarctica uh, for the British Empire and her dominions beyond the sea. And then again in in 1928 uh, with letters patent formally uh, claimed um, parts of East Antarctica uh, for uh, Australia. The first comprehensive map ever made of Antarctica. Uh, That's it there, 1939, showing uh, the Australian Antarctic Territory, the the Norwegian claim, the Terra Dele, and uh, the Ross Sea Dependency, which is now New Zealand, uh, and and the UK claim uh, in the Weddell Sea, was produced here in Canberra by the Surveyor-General. In 1939 and it was, the, it was the first comprehensive map of Antarctica and it shows um, the Australian Antarctic Territory, um, which is, for those who are interested, and I know Roger's interested in maps, it's the size of Australia minus Queensland, so that's how much, uh, how big Antarctica is, the Australian claim to Antarctica is 42% of the Antarctic continent. Prior uh, to uh, the Second World War, the um, era of Antarctic exploration was really uh, about discovery. Uh, it was also about Resource exploitation, whaling uh, in particular, also sealing. Um, but after the Second World War, there was a strategic interest emerging in the Antarctic, particularly the interplay between the Soviet Union uh, and the US uh, and the, the Western allies being very concerned about the Soviet Union's interests uh, in the Antarctic. Um, And from that period, um, from the end of the Second World War through to about uh, 1956, 57, there were a number of initiatives kicked off about how to deal with what was called the problem of Antarctica. And the problem of Antarctica was this emerging Cold War feeling of competition uh, between the US and, 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 and Russia, uh, the Soviet Union. In Antarctica, the interests of the claimants, so the claimants being Australia, New Zealand, France, Norway, the United Kingdom, Argentina and and, and Chile and their interests uh, and then this emerging uh, (coughs) interest in Antarctica from from the Russians. And and it wasn't uh, until the um, mid-1950s that a clear way forward of, of how to think about how the problem of Antarctica uh, might be solved um, started to emerge. And it actually emerged through uh, a science initiative and 1957, 1958, the International Geophysical Year, um, where uh, the uh, ICSU, the International uh, Union of Science Organisations, got together um, to launch the International Geophysical Year. And their, um, one of their grand projects was to look at the geophysical environment of the Poles, uh, and Antarctica being one of them. And 12 countries uh, engaged uh, in uh, that activity, uh, including Russia, uh, all the claimants, uh, and uh, the United States. And it was from that initiative that the Antarctic Treaty, uh, which was signed in 1960, came into force uh, 1961, um, which is where the uh, Antarctic um, Treaty originated. Now, I just want to concentrate here a bit uh, on uh, the claims to, an- to Antarctica. You can see that below uh, the Antarctic, uh, below Argentina uh, and Chile. Um, along the Antarctic Peninsula, there are three overlapping claims. They're the claims of the United Kingdom, um, Chile uh, and Argentina. All of the other claims in Antarctica are non-overlapping and they are um, from here around. Uh, (coughs) New Zealand, Australia, France, Australia again uh, and Norway. So 12 countries participated uh, in the International Geophysical Year, and they're the first 12 countries you can see on that list, and they are the countries, the original signatories to the Antarctic Treaty. Australia, Argentina, Belgium, Chile, France, Japan, New Zealand, Norway, uh, Soviet Union, as it was at the time, Russia now, uh, South Africa, the United States, and uh, the United Kingdom. They're the original signatories to the Antarctic Treaty. So back in the 1959, 1960, when the Antarctic Treaty was being negotiated, 12 countries had direct uh, interests in the Antarctic. Uh, Since then, all of those countries uh, on the left, there the orange countries have all joined um, the Antarctic Treaty and, and have active Antarctic programs. Uh, all of those countries in this row are signatories to the Antarctic Treaty but don't have active science programs and therefore aren't involved in decision-making uh, in Antarctica. So the Antarctic Treaty has gone from a small group of, of, of 12 countries uh, to uh, 54 um, signatories, um, 20 nine consultative parties, I think I've got that right, um, the, the last one being uh, the, the Czech Republic. and the last um, signatory which is, which is very interesting for, for geopolitical and regional interests, the last two signatories, Malaysia and Pakistan. The Antarctic Treaty is often criticized by academics for being uh, a small club. Uh, but in fact, the Antarctic Treaty covers much more than half of the global population, as shown on, on that map there. And the Antarctic Treaty is open to any uh, member of the United Nations, so any member of the United Nations can join the Antarctic Treaty. It's not, it has no uh, veto on signatories. Now, the Antarctic Treaty is, is, as a political and international instrument, is very, very important to Australia because it does one significantly, strategically significant thing. It makes all of that region below 60 degrees south below Australia but all around the Antarctic continent and Antarctica itself from 60 degrees south is demilitarised, it's nuclear weapons free and because of that Australia can, as Roger said, be a two-ocean navy and not concentrate that much at least in a direct military sense in a defense fighting sense on the Southern Ocean and Antarctica we do have strategic interests there and, and some of those um, <coughs> some of those may require assets but but not for fighting wars that was really important um, in that cold War period and it's going to become increasingly, Important in years to come. The fact uh, that Antarctica is demilitarised will be hugely significant in the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years and beyond. Um, The Antarctic Treaty has a number of of, uh, other um, articles to it, but the, the The two most important are that there is free exchange of scientific information in Antarctic research and that the interests of the claimant states are protected by Article 4 of the Antarctic Treaty. That is, the treaty does not dismiss Antarctic claims, It doesn't recognise Antarctic claims either. It recognises that some countries, and they are Russia, the Soviet Union was Russia, and the United States assert the rights to claim any or all of Antarctica. uh, And it also protects the interests of those uh, countries that don't recognise any Antarctic claims. And what the Antarctic Treaty did, which was really important, is that it set aside those arguments about territoriality in Antarctica. It didn't set aside the claims, as some academics assert. It set aside the arguments about the claims. And so the Antarctic Treaty, in that sense, is also really important for Australia, um, and others because it protects Australia's Antarctic claim. In the 80s there were uh, a number of of reports to government about um, Australia's Antarctic interests and and how they should be expressed. Uh, And in 1989 uh, the government defined explicitly what Australia's Antarctic policy interests were and they are to preserve sovereignty over the Australian Antarctic Territory, to maintain Antarctica free from strategic and or political confrontation, to protect the Antarctic environment, to take advantage of Antarctica's opportunities for science and research, uh, to be informed about and be able to influence developments in a region proximity to Australia and to derive any reasonable economic benefits from living and non-living resources uh, in the Antarctic Treaty Area, excluding mining. Uh, and That's because Australia had just led a major international, uh, along with France uh, and the assistance of of Spain, major international effort to um, abandon the Minerals Convention. Uh, which had been negotiated, uh, and to put in its place an, a comprehensive environmental protocol to Antarctica. Now, successive governments since 1989 have, have reasserted uh, those interests, but they're not publicly very well known. And one of the one of the recommendations uh, that I'm making in my report is, in fact, that the government explicitly come out uh, and make these known. I've also recommended there be a, uh, an additional um, interest and that is uh, an interest that Australia uh, protects the Antarctic treaty system. Um, we'll see where that goes but I, I think it's, it's important that Australia sees, uh, that the Australian population sees explicitly um, what governments have decided uh, about our interests in the Antarctic. Um, In 1998, the last time, uh, 1997, sorry, no, this was 1998, Um, the last time the government actually had a comprehensive look at, at what we were doing in Antarctica. It's established a number of goals for the Australian Antarctic Program, maintain the Antarctic Treaty System and enhance Australia's influence in it protect the Antarctic environment, understand the role of Antarctica in the global climate system and undertake scientific work of practical, economic and national significance. And I think those goals are as relevant today as they were uh, in 1998. They're not that different from um, William Clinton's signature to this policy uh, that the Americans uh, have about their uh, Antarctic interests, although Australia's interests are uh, fairly explicitly um, to do with its territorial claim as well. But um, protecting the unspoiled environment, preserving and pursuing scientific research, maintaining Antarctica uh, as an area of international cooperation for peaceful purposes, etc. So um, the US, Australia, many other countries have got specific um, statements about their Antarctic interests that are, that are along those lines and they're consistent with their obligations under the Antarctic Treaty. So, in context, I always try and summarise our view uh, uh, of Antarctica. Um, And there's Australia looking from the bottom of Antarctica. Antarctica is close to Australia. It's it's peaceful. It's safe. We have very deep historical connections to the Antarctic. It's economically important to us. Uh, One of our most profitable fisheries. One of Australia's most profitable fisheries is the toothfish fishery, the Antarctic toothfish fishery. Um, it's actually the Patagonian toothfish fishery, but in sub-Antarctic waters. I caught that. Um, Antarctica is important for Australia and it's important for science. Now, get on to science in a minute. Australia's a claimant. We're an original signatory to the Antarctic Treaty. We're a very important player in Antarctic affairs and we have our own strategic Antarctic interests. So we should be actively engaged in Antarctica and we should not deliberately or accidentally disengage uh, from um, Antarctic affairs. So, science. Well, one of my first recommendations uh, in in the report um, I I had to modify because of the recent decision by the government to fund the replacement of of Aurora Australis. But Australia's... One of uh, Australia's very, very few blue water marine research vessels, the icebreaker Aurora Australis is coming to the end of its life Uh, and in the last budget the government has uh, committed to replacing uh, that vessel, that will be a very, very, very big project. Um, But it's important uh, for Australia and for those countries that we work with in East Antarctica, for Australia to have uh, comprehensive access to the Antarctic continent from the sea and be able to undertake scientific research in the Southern Ocean, uh, in the sea ice uh, and along the coast of Antarctica, Um, not only for ourselves but for assisting other Antarctic um, countries to to also uh, work in Antarctica. So that's a major strategically important decision uh, about uh, our efforts uh, in, in the Antarctic. That new vessel is scheduled to come online 2019, I think. Um, it's, it's in the tender process at the moment. Um, <clears throat> but leaving aside our territorial claims, leaving aside our historical interests in the Antarctic, leaving aside... Um, our physical physical strategic interests in the Antarctic. I assert that we should and would and must be engaged uh, in Antarctic science even if any of those other things didn't matter. And that's because Antarctica is... Hugely important in the global climate system. And we know very, very, very little about Antarctica. This um, map here on the left-hand side uh, is looking through the ice at the bedrock of East Antarctica, the Australian Antarctic Territory. Those lines are lines flown from a aircraft doing geophysical survey and what that shows you is okay here's the coastline there, the white bits are are, are water, the dark bits are above sea level, the darker they are the more above sea level they are, the bluer they are the more below sea level they are and what that shows is that there's this huge area of East Antarctica, about a third of East Antarctica, is actually grounded below sea level. And we didn't know that five years ago. This is research that's being published, that's been published or being published uh, in the last few years. And if you look at it another way, that's what it would look like if you were looking at it at ground level from looking at the mountains below the ice. Now that might be a a cute bit of, of, uh, of geology, but it's also really important because ice grounded below sea level will contribute to sea level rise because when water's warm, and the sea melts that ice underneath, it retreats. And it will keep retreating until it hits rock. If the coastline was here, then that's where the ice melt would stop. But it's not. coastline's hundreds of kilometres inland. What we didn't know is, what we didn't know ten years ago, what we didn't know five years ago, is that there is a potential for rapid destabilisation of parts of East Antarctica uh, and a uh, contribution to sea level rise comparable to what we're observing at the moment in West Antarctica and around the Antarctic Peninsula. Uh, Antarctica is also important because it gives us a unique view of past climate, we can now go back through the ice cores in Antarctica and get a climate record that goes back to 860,000 years, which is the oldest climate record so far. Uh, And There's a national consortium that Australia's involved in. There'll be an international meeting in Hobart um, early next year where we'll be looking for ice that's more than a million years old and this is really important because the general climate cycles that we've been involved in uh, over the last 900 1.1 million years have been about 140,000 100 to 140,000 years apart between warming and cooling and warming and cooling before that it was about 40,000 years apart and we're looking to find an ice core record that goes back to that 40,000-year cycle to see whether that's directly uh, related to um, conditions in the atmosphere, particularly uh, carbon dioxide. Australia has, uh, in the Australian Antarctic Territory, a place called Law Dome, the very, very, very best temperature records uh, for Antarctica over the last 2,000 years. Um, And so there's a lot we can learn. And from this temperature record at Law Dome, one of the things uh, that we've discovered in the last decade and and are still discovering are the teleconnections between climate in Australia and climate in Antarctica. And we know now that, for instance, the Drought that's been happening in southwest Western Australia for the last 30 30 years, not 30,000 years. 30 years is actually the biggest drought in the last 800 years. We're able to tell that because when it snows heavily at Law Dome, it's dry in southwest and Western Australia and you can go back through the record and reconstruct southwest and Western Australia's um, climate record from the ice in Antarctica. And we're now finding those same kinds of climate records for the Murray-Darling Basin in eastern Australia. So there's much we can learn about our own economic environment, agricultural economic environment, from uh, that kind of research uh, in the Antarctic. And that's why I say um, that... We'd be there anyway. We'd be in Antarctica anyway. Even if we didn't have those Antarctic uh, territorial claims. So, I'm not going to questions yet. What does the future hold? Well, Antarctica... I think will remain, for many, many, many decades to come, a place of science, peace and cooperation. I don't think there is any threat to that at all. There's often speculation uh, in the media uh, about the interests of some countries. Russia's often named, others are are named, uh, about their interests uh, in mineral resources uh, in the Antarctic. And I think it is true uh, that some countries are being less than transparent in the way uh, they conduct some of their science uh, in in Antarctica, Uh, and I think... That's actually an issue that needs to be uh, addressed uh, politically and diplomatically. Uh, But I don't think the ultimate um, result of that will be uh, opening of mining in Antarctica, at least in the next numbers of decades. It's often said that the Antarctic Treaty expires in 2048 or the ban on mining expires in 2048 and and then there'll be a free-for-all in the Antarctic. Well, that's uh, not correct either. The the ban on mining uh, in the Antarctic uh, is indefinite. It's perpetual. The only thing that happens uh, or could happen is that there could be a review of Uh, that of all of the Madrid Protocol and the ban on mining in 2048, if anybody uh, called for that review. But the mathematics of overturning uh, the mining ban are absolutely formidable. And it would require, ultimately, every country uh, that was a signatory to the Antarctic Treaty in... 1990 would require every one of those countries um, to agree. If one country didn't agree and didn't enact uh, the the requirements for overturning the ban, um, then the ban would remain in place. What might happen at that stage would be a destabilisation of... the polity of uh, the, the the political structures in the, in the Antarctic Treaty System, but I doubt that. I think um, the strength of the Antarctic Treaty uh, has been that it's weathered many uh, political storms uh, and come through them stronger uh, than than uh, before those storms commenced. I think the the most likely um, area of, of, of conflict uh, in Antarctica is actually in the Southern Ocean for marine living resources. Um, and there are um, uh, there are potential um, marine living resources in Antarctica that are hugely uh, underexploited. The krill fishery is one of them. The krill fishery is the largest underexploited fishery in the world. It has a sustainable yield of somewhere—I mean, a very conservative sustainable yield of somewhere over four million tons a year, uh, and it's currently being harvested at about a two hundred thousand tons a year. So there's a huge potential uh, for expansion of the krill fishery before uh, there's conflict. Um, I think that that the that destabilisation in that in that marine living resources area is more likely to come uh, from uh, countries either within or without uh, of the Antarctic Treaty, not abiding by uh, the regulations put down uh, by the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine. At living resources. So, my view is that, that threats over living resources, conflict over living resources uh, is going uh, to um, be more likely and probably occur uh, well before conflict uh, over uh, mineral resources uh, in the Antarctic. Um, I. I don't see other regional conflicts spilling over in um, more than a symbolic way uh, into the Antarctic Treaty system. Um, The Russians and the Americans were able to talk to each other all through the Cold War uh, in the Antarctic Treaty. Um, UK and Argentina were able to talk to each other while they were throwing rocks uh, in the conflict over Illus Malvinus, Falkland Islands. Um, I think that that, uh, it's unlikely that other wider geopolitical interests, um, conflicts will spill over into the Antarctic, more than symbolically. Uh, spill over to the Antarctic environment. I'd be interested, I I would be a casual observer in seeing how Ukraine and Russia um, deal with fishing at the next Kamala meeting. I'd like to be a fly on the wall for that. But I I, I don't see these things spilling over into deep conflicts within um, the Antarctic Treaty itself. So let me conclude... um, by saying two things. The first is that Australia should be actively engaged in Antarctica, in, in science, in governance, and in diplomacy. And we need to match our investment in that engagement with our aspirations. And my personal view is that our aspirations are this big and our investment's about that big. And we really need to step up to the plate and invest uh, in the science uh, and the diplomacy that protects our interests. And one of the most important interests to protect in in Antarctica is to protect not only our sovereignty but also the Antarctic Treaty System because it's through that uh, that Australia's national strategic interests in Antarctica will always be protected. And I'll leave it there. Uh, First question here,
3: please. Patrick from ANU, we did not mention the pressures by uh, tourism. And I think they're going to be increasing uh, dramatically. And also who is going to monitor or dictate what can be and what cannot be done?
2: Okay, um, I, I I think there are two issues to do with, with tourism, to put tourism in perspective. Um, Most of the tourism, 97% of tourism occurs on the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, And the global economic crisis actually knocked the the wind out of the sails of tourism. Um, So back before the global economic crisis, tourism numbers in Antarctica were about 40,000 a year. And as I said, 97% going to the Antarctic Peninsula. but of those around about 90% of those actually were vessel based so they never um, they, they were never on land more than for the occasional visit. That doesn't mean uh, that there aren't potential impacts of tourism and the, 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 the two biggest potential impacts of, of, of tourism are direct degradation of the physical environment, trampling, um, spreading of disease, introduction of, of uh, alien organisms. Um, and uh, then uh, the, other, um, the other effect of, of, of tourism are the, are the unforeseen accidents where you get a, a vessel hold um, uh, uh, and, and, and an environmental disaster uh, ensuing. Um, we almost saw one of those this year um, uh, down uh, in, in Antarctica from a group of, of tourists um, calling themselves the, the, uh, uh, the Australian Antarctic Expedition. Um, <coughs> that was, that was uh, a, a potential um, situation that never eventuated. Um, so my view is that the level of tourism uh, and the kinds of direct impacts that tourism uh, has can actually be quite easily managed. Uh, And they are being managed uh, at the moment through two sets of institutions. One is the Antarctic Treaty itself uh, and the measures that it has in place to regulate uh, tourism, uh, and also by the tourism industry. that has a very, very, more so than anywhere else that I've been involved in, and for those that have known me for a long time, I've been engaged in natural area management for about 30 years. Um, The the level of industry self-regulation in Antarctica far exceeds um, industry regulation uh, anywhere else. I think that potentially the biggest impact of tourism will be a combination of climate change uh, and accidental introduction of alien organisms, in other words, climate change making it parts of Antarctica, particularly the peninsula, more hospitable to alien organisms (coughs) uh, and tourism bringing in um, uh, an organism that establishes there. But that's a lot less likely than national Antarctic programs doing the same thing. And so uh, the same um, efforts and regulations that apply to the tourism industry need to be applied to national Antarctic programs as well to stop that happening.
4: Uh, Rupert from uh, also the University of Melbourne. Um, you mentioned that the, uh, uh, one of your recommendations is going to be uh, strengthening. The protection of the Antarctic Treaty system itself. Um, Would that include uh, strengthening uh, the Madrid Protocol and some of the measures that it introduced, such as the protected area system? The Madrid Protocol uh, came into force 16 years ago, and the protected area system under Annex 5 has essentially languished.
3: Nothing much happened.
2: Um, Well, uh, I'm a little. My recommendation is a little more uh, general than that. What I'm I'm actually recommending is that Australia publicly commit to um, supporting the Antarctic Treaty System as part of its national interests. But in a general sense, I think one of the most underdeveloped parts of, of, uh, of the Madrid Protocol since it came into force in 1998 is the protected area system. Uh, and I do believe that international efforts need, are needed to uh, and expand uh, the, the area protection uh, regime in Antarctica. Uh, you may be interested in having a look at the article that Valeri Lucan just published uh, on... Um, Area protection in Antarctica and why it's a plot by the claimant states to undermine the Antarctic Treaty System. Uh, it's quite a read. but I'll leave that for you.
3: If a country carries out uh, some activities in all within Antarctic territory, such as building a scientific station or kind of other scientific activities, or uh, even other activities for resources, will these activities uh, have an influence um, on Australian injuries or uh, what an influence on Australian
2: clean for Antarctica Okay, okay. Um, there are many levels to that question uh, but the first is that uh, under the Antarctic Treaty all of Antarctica is available to all countries um, that are members of the Treaty to engage in scientific activity so Australia doesn't impose laws on foreign nationals in Antarctica, in the Australian Antarctic Territory. That's one of the one of the practices that's grown up uh, in the Antarctic Treaty, because of that over, overriding uh, obligation in the Antarctic Treaty for free access to any or all of Antarctica for scientific research. So at that level. Um, uh, there's, there's no conflict between Australia saying uh, we have the Australian Antarctic Territory and another country, France or India or Russia or China, um, conducting uh, scientific activities there. You mentioned resources. Well, any country... Uh, exploiting mineral resources in Antarctica would be in breach of the Antarctic Treaty. Uh, and then you may or may not have implied: Do those activities actually change the status of of, um, of the Australian Antarctic Territory? Well, no. Uh, Article four of the Australian Antarctic uh, of the sorry Article four of the Antarctic Treaty um, says that anything that's, that happens uh, within the life of the treaty, um, in Antarctica, neither um, affirms or diminishes our uh, territorial claims.
4: Thank you. So, uh, Harvey Marchant, uh, sometime uh, ANU. Um, Tony, getting people to and from Antarctica is always a, a problem. The, you talked about the replacement of the Aurora Australis. Uh, there's also The uh, air transport system, which hasn't been as successful as it could be, flying to the ice runway at Casey because of the melt there. Uh, In your strategic plan, do you see the development of a more strategic, a more substantial uh, rock runway, say in the Vestfold Hills, for example, that uh, would enable the transfer of both people and
2: also the potential for some cargo to Antarctica. Right. Um, What I've recommended uh, is uh, that uh, we should do a thorough review of uh, the current uh, availability for air transport systems to and from Antarctica. Uh, and, uh, and there are now platforms that are available to fly that distance uh, and with the right engine uh, and, and ETOPS uh, configurations to be able to operate under an Australian licence uh, to and from Antarctica. Um, when, the, when the ice runway was put in place, there were very limited number of aircraft that could do that and do it successfully there are now at least one if not two uh, aircraft that are, that are uh, at least capable uh, of doing that. My recommendation is that uh, the government should look at that uh, in the medium term um, and to try and configure uh, an air transport system that would allow for direct flights to and from more than just one place in Antarctica. I haven't been so bold as to say there should be a rock runway here or an ice runway there. I think there's a lot more um, ice to flow around the continent before somebody comes to that decision. But um, one of the things I will say is that Australia will not be able to maximise the potential that the new research vessel gives it unless it also matches uh, that potential uh, with uh, greater capability for inter- and intra-continental air transport.
3: Uh, Thank you Tony. John McFarlane from the Strategic Defence Studies in the ANU. This question may be outside the scope of the talk, so I think it is, But some years ago, an Australian customs vessel intercepted or tried to intercept, I think it was a Spanish vessel. The Viasa. Yeah. On the, the trying to fish for, or fishing for, packing to fish. And then chased this vessel all the way to South Africa, where it was ultimately arrested. Uh, the crew members were extradited to Australia. They were tried before the Western Australian Supreme Court and acquitted. And I understand that the reason for the acquittal was that our law was inadequate in this area. So I just wondered if any lessons have been learned from that, and in particular, has our law been. Uh, so that we
2: don't the, the Short answer is yes. Um, what, what, what it was to do was was not really about Antarctica. It was that vessel uh, was sighted uh, in the Australian exclusive economic zone around Heard Island, uh, and it was the way uh, the vessel was intercepted um, uh, that led to that. Um, rather unfortunate overturning of, uh, well, the the, the lack of of conviction. Um, So, yes, the law and the practice has been changed. But that's still the longest uh, pursuit ever on the high seas. (laughs) Uh, And there are some fantastic photographs of the... uh, 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 It was actually bordered by um, South African uh, fisheries enforcement officers, who were the scariest bunch of people <laughs> I've I've ever seen. They looked as if they'd just walked out of Angola. It was fantastic. Anyway, it was, it was a tragedy to lose that case. Thank you. Martin, the thank you. I'm Liz Spokanica from Strategic and Defence Studies Centre. Um, so, the ATS is negotiated,
3: obviously, in a different time. Uh, with the rise of new technology, how do you think Australia is going to deal with, say, space based surveillance and satellite, which could be classified as peaceful but then serves a military purpose through, say, Intel
2: launch? That's interesting. I, I've actually been asked that question a number of times. <laughs> um, and, and I've actually um, talked around a, a, a few people about that. Um, there are better places you know, in the world to put ground stations to, to listen um, to the rest of the world than Antarctica. And the short answer is um, that practically uh, Antarctica probably won't become a great hub for that kind of, of, of activity, it has been speculated. Um, I I do think, though, that at some stage uh, in the future inside the Antarctic um, Treaty itself uh, there needs to be a discussion about uh, non-traditional military engagement. Um, I think we can work out ships and guns and bombs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But at some stage in the future there will need to be a fairly... um, explicit discussion about what people actually do um, in in the area of of satellite technology and surveillance. Um, uh, India, for instance, I I know, um, is really interested in setting up uh, geostationary satellites over over the Indian Ocean. Uh, and whether, whether they're stationed in Antarctica is associated with that kind of activity, I, I just don't know that.
3: How long would it be before we were coming to the UK? Sorry. That's the
2: way it is. is. We're even mothballed? Oh, look, um, uh, if you mothballed... Any of our stations in Antarctica without establishing uh, uh, a, a comparable effort somewhere else and I'm, I don't mean build a station I mean uh, revamp <laughs> your science program or or go drill the million-year-old ice core in the Aurora Basin um, if all you did was mothball and walk away. Um, in a strict treaty sense, that wouldn't do anything to Australia's Antarctic claim, but it would certainly be seen by the rest of the world uh, as Australia losing its interest in its Antarctic territory. Uh, and that would be something that Australia could never recover from. Thank
3: you, Bruce Cook. Thanks. Um... From time to time we hear murmuring that the US is going to pull out of Christchurch, probably
2: predominated by earthquakes. Do you see opportunities for other nations facing some of Australia particularly in Tasmania? Um, well let's let's go to the US. I don't think the US will ever pull out of Christchurch. Um, the the relationship between uh, the US, New Zealand, Antarctica and the New Zealand ban on nuclear vessels very tightly interwoven and I don't see um, I don't see the u.s. diminishing its uh, its efforts in in, in um, Christchurch um, but I do see opportunities um, for Hobart to actually host um, US activities from time to time and um, And as a matter of fact, uh, this year there are um, I think six uh, US uh, research um, visits to the port of Hobart Uh, and I see in the future with the upgrade of the the extension to the Hobart runway I see uh, US aircraft uh, being able to... Say so do a run Guam, Alice Springs, Hobart, McMurdo, that kind of thing with a heavy lift aircraft, um, and uh, Australia itself flies a lot of um, US scientific personnel to and from um, Christchurch to McMurdo. They could also do that from uh, Hobart to McMurdo as well. Australia's got a quid quo pro. Looking at other nations, uh, look, uh, Australia has had a very, very long and deep um, association with the Chinese Antarctic effort. The uh, Chinese scientists, uh, the first Chinese scientist to go to Antarctica, came to Antarctica with the Australian Antarctic Division. <coughs> um, and Australia has deep, personal uh, and and scientific connections uh, with Chinese scientists. Um, And there is still much engagement in the Chinese science program and the Australian Antarctic program working together uh, and I see potentially uh, a lot more uh, activity uh, between Australia and China uh, operating uh, out of Hobart. Um, And then other countries like Korea uh, and Russia uh, uh, are also possible occasional or regular um, users of of the port of Hobart and and the airport at Hobart. With the extension of the Hobart runway, you can actually fly direct from from, um, Shanghai um, to Hobart, for example. Um, I, I, I see there's a there's a, a, a lot of potential there. I don't think you'll see India. India's got a special presidential decree that says they'll operate out of out of um, uh, uh, Cape Town. But I think there's an opportunity for for more effort um, from other nations operating out of Hobart. And I've actually done a a, f- a fairly detailed economic analysis of the relationship between the Antarctic program and the Tasmanian economy. If you want to know, the, uh, the, the Antarctic and, and, and marine science efforts in, in, uh, in Tasmania are now about the same size as forestry, so they're a significant, they're a significant uh, part of the Tasmanian economy.
3: Given <laughs> 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 so, um, um, so the, um, the relationship between Pamela and um, the Antarctic countries um, and the potential for conflict and destabilization associated so, with access to new resources, I was wondering whether or not you might uh, reflect on whether or not the, uh, there should be a perhaps a greater investment in or Primary
2: investment, strategic investment in marine science versus investment in land-based science? Oh, look, absolutely. Um, the examples that I used there were examples, I, I think there's, um, I don't think we should, Australia and others, as a matter of fact, should um, diminish at all um, their marine science efforts. Um, in in the southern ocean, I was commenting today that Switzerland has um, twice as much marine science capability as Australia has. Um, I I think that I think that we need, and so does New Zealand. I think that we need to uh, to to ramp up our efforts in all areas of, of of marine science in the Antarctic, in the Antarctic, not just physical, but 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 biological uh, as well. And there's actually um, one of the great international efforts that Australia led, which was the uh, Census of Antarctic Marine Life. Um, that's about to be launched, that book's about to be launched in, a, in a, today is it? Yeah, I know it was Scar, but it's launched again in Australia, tomorrow or today or something. Anyway, multiple launches. But yes, I, I, I don't think we should diminish our efforts at all. I think we should increase our efforts.
3: Uh, come on Sean Clark, New Zealand, Tony, thanks very much for a wonderful question. One um, would assume there's still vulnerabilities within the entire treaty system, that for as long as there are the existing ambiguities around the management and sharing of global commons and there are some of the world nations not signatory <coughs> or consultative consul- party to the treaty, so we'll be looking to drive... As much interest in
2: the treaty as possible. How's progress, and what are the obstacles to the rest of the countries? Uh, okay, so so after the twenty-fifth uh, anniversary of the coming into force of the um, Madrid Protocol, uh, Australia, France, and others led a, a concerted diplomatic effort to uh, get more parties to sign up to um, the Madrid Protocol, um, which, of course, necessitates signing the treaty. (laughs) Not necessarily necessitates signing the the Kamala Convention. Um, uh, I, I, I think things will probably stay relatively stable. Uh, for the next few years, my suspicion is um, that this misunderstanding about the the um, the expiry of the mining ban, uh, and I will reinforce the mining ban does not expire; it it uh, continues forever unless overturned. Um, but but that misunderstanding might actually lead to more parties becoming interested uh, in joining the Antarctic Treaty as 2048 um, uh, 2048, um, approaches. And one of the recommendations I've made in in my report is, in fact, Australia and others, and the Antarctic Treaty parties as a whole, should be actively going out there explaining uh, what the treaty does, what the Environmental Protection Protocol does, what CAMELA does, uh, and engaging with non-parties.
0: Uh, we hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine. ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.